The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. There we go. It's baseball season, except, of course, it isn't really because of coronavirus. It's coronavirus season and nothing else, at least here in America. We are still inside and hoping for the best. The food, the electricity, the Internet have all held up, at least where I am, at least as of this recording. More and more people I know have gotten this wretched disease. It is a nightmare, pure and simple. But we go on because we must go on. Ms. Beckett said, you must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. That was in the unnameable. And here we are doing the same thing or trying to, except I'm not unnameable. I have a name. It's Jack Wilson. And this is the History of Literature. So we move from baseball to Beckett, and all of this is trying to help us stay sane during this period of onslaught and failure and terror and death. A lost spring. But we are turning to literature, even as we can't turn to pleasures like gatherings in the park or concerts or watching kids play soccer. Simple pleasures. We do still have books, and we do still have podcasts, and I still have you, and you still have me. And we can still think. Mitchell Nathanson is here today. He's a thinking sort of person, a professor of law who's written a new biography of Jim Bouton, a true pioneer in the world of writing about sports. His book, Ball Four, caused a splash when it was written, sold a million copies. It drew a lot of criticism, too. It's one of those opening up kind of books, a cracker of the ice. (laughs) No, that's... Not about a racist hockey player. That's my term for a book that changes an aspect of literature. It cracks the ice. There was sports writing before Ball Four and sports writing after. We'll talk about that when Professor Nathanson gets here. But don't worry for all you non-sports fans or any of you who say, Hey, I don't mind sports, but baseball's not my thing. This is not a conversation for baseball junkies. It's a conversation for lovers of literature and observers of life who are looking at the men around them and saying, why, why, why are you like this? We know you're vulnerable. Why can't you show it? Why the facade? What does that mean? Where does it come from? How does it inform your actions? How do you overcome it if you do? Bouton was writing about his experience as a player, but baseball on the field actually had very little to do with the book. It was about the life of an athlete, the life of a hero, the gods and heroes we worship, and what happens when they stumble and fall. It was about getting older and getting less able and coming to grips with the end of glory days. Ah, there we go. You know that song. Bruce, the boss. 
wrote the best song about baseball ever and also the worst song about baseball ever, according to some people, all in one song. The song, Glory Days. He captured that moment that's so moving for so many of us. Those who weren't Derek Jeter or A-Rod, who weren't born to be millionaires, but who played a little ball in our day when the grass was green and the leaves were lush. And we had friends who played too, who played very well, and we admired their talent, which was not stratospheric, maybe not major league, but still worthy of our admiration and our envy. And we were young and swift and strong and good-looking too. Damn it. We were athletic and muscular, sexy. Not Brad Pitt, not Heidi Klum, not Denzel Washington, not who are the avatars of beauty. Not movie star beauty is what I mean, not supermodels. But young people are good-looking, it's just how they are, and they roam through town playing ball and driving cars and going on dates. And then this all ends, and life moves into different phases with jobs and marriages and kids and divorces, remarriages, hospitals, grandkids, funerals. Then you look back at those glory days and you think how beautiful things once were and how warm it is, how golden it is to look back and remember. That's what Bruce captures. That's why this song is the greatest song about baseball ever written. And then he goes and uses the word speedball. <laughs> Nobody says that. It's called a fastball. Or maybe some other cliche, an aspirin tablet, you could say, but not a speedball. And so baseball fans hate the song just for that word. It's like fingernails on the chalkboard to them. One word. On the one hand, there's this beautiful melancholy, this perfect encapsulation of nostalgia. This utterly devastating look at life and getting older and small-town, hard-working, honest folks and their relationship to a simple pleasure like baseball. On the other side of the scale, there's the word speedball. <laughs> Hardly seems fair, but maybe it is. It's like a totaled Ferrari. Yes, it's a Ferrari. And yes, it's totaled. You'd be better off with a Corolla. Poor Bruce. I still love the song anyway. I will overlook Speedball, and I hope you do too. He's bigger than Speedball. Even Homer nodded. Never used Speedball. But he nodded now and then. Okay, let's get to our baseball talk. That's not really baseball talk. We'll have an email from a listener in Italy, another beautiful email from a listener in the Pacific Northwest. Then Mitchell Nathanson, biographer of Jim Bouton, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, our first email today is from Michele in Torino, Italy, or as it's called in English, Turin, a city I like very much, even though it's less of a, how shall I put it, it's a different kind of Italy than the Italy that most people love best. It's not Rome or Florence or Venice. It's not Assisi or Perugia. It's not Capri, not Naples, not Pompeii. My God, Italy is amazing. (laughs) It's not Sicily, not even my beloved Bologna. It's a little more German, a little more French, almost Swiss-like. Turin. Turin. And yet, it has a great literary past. And I like this time I spent there very much. I could live there, I think. It's kind of like Milan. So here we go. Michele and Turin. Grazie and grazia is the subject. Very intriguing. Dear Jack, I hope I find you well in these dark times for humanity. I would like to convey my deepest gratitude to you in a word. Grazie. Please pass my thanks to Mike and your team. I discovered your podcast a few months ago. I moved for a brief assignment to Michigan from Italy. Uh, Michigan is another one of my former haunts. I've flown back and forth to and from Michigan and Italy many times. I'm really warming to Michele. What an interesting life. He, I assume it's a he the Italian name Michele, not a variation of Michelle, but my apologies if I'm incorrect about that. What an interesting life Michele is living. Back to the email. In Turin, where I live, I used to read in my commute to work, so I was looking for something to listen to while driving. After some missteps, I finally found your podcast, and I was hooked. During my 45 minutes I-75 ride alone in the car at 5 a.m., I listened to your witty exchanges with Mike. Your take on so many masterpieces, or not-so-great books, well, it was a bliss. Most of the time, I was eagerly looking forward to listening to the podcast, knowing that after work, it would take one hour to come back home. For example, the episodes on Primo Levi or Fyodor Dostoevsky, what a ride! They were just perfect to listen to while driving. Through the podcast lens, I saw that there were so many authors and books that one lifetime will be too short to tackle all of them, but it will be worth it to try. Even a few weeks ago, before the lockdown, I enjoyed listening to your podcast, walking in Turin Park Valentino or in the city center near Piazza Castello. The episodes on Keats were mesmerizing, and the episode on the Magic Mountain came to life just in time. I was finishing the book in those days. I am truly grateful to you and Mike to have pushed me into reading it. Now, after all those nice words, I hope I have conveyed my admiration. 
I need to bring up Grazia. I am Italian, but I am also Sardinian. We are known to be very proud people. And Grazia Daleda was Sardinian as well. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1926, and you can imagine how I feel about it. In the episode on Nobel Prize Decades, she was deemed not worthy of the prize. I know, I know, she is not a well-known author, and there were writers that changed the world with the masterpieces that did not win a deserved Nobel. I am nobody to argue about that. However, I wanted to share with you what she meant for me and for a lot of people from that ancient island in the Mediterranean Sea. She was a self-taught writer, and her books are brilliant in depicting the simple life of shepherds and women, mostly, without heroism or drama, but real struggle and suffering, like in her most famous book, Canne al Vento, or Reeds in the Wind. I guess this is not an uproar like for Cervantes, but at least I wanted to elicit some reconsideration. That said, I really think that all literature is worthwhile. There are better books and better writers than others, but as humans we cannot avoid relying on stories, and this makes us who we are. Your work reflects what we need, stories, writers, and purpose, even more in these days. Ciao from Turin, and keep up with the splendid podcast. Yours, Michele. Wow. What a beautiful email. I couldn't agree more with the final paragraph that humans look to stories and storytelling. It's the reason why literature, or at least fiction, matters, and especially so during difficult times like these. Now... Grazia Deleda. Oh no, that is a sheer oversight on my part. I'm so used to the Nobel whiffing that I don't always see the winners for what they are. Unsung heroes. Worthy choices. I've never read Grazia Deleda, but Michele's description of her intrigues me. Self-taught writer, ding, that's a plus. Books depicting the lives of shepherds and women, ding again. Sounds like my kind of writer. Without heroism or drama, but real struggle and suffering. How have I missed her? So I looked her up. I still haven't read her, but I've learned more about her. She thought life was beautiful and serene, and that there was a kind of beauty in the suffering. It was man and nature coming together. Wow. Suffering seems to be the one knock on her, if knock is the right word. Feminists haven't raised her as a champion in spite of her focus on women characters, perhaps because the women are suffering more than they are strong. But she sounds like a perfectly good example of a writer living a writer's life. She lived simply and wrote every day. When she won the Nobel Prize, her life was a bit upended as journalists and others made their way to Sardinia and interrupted her seclusion. Mussolini, who had just taken power, wanted to give her a present, so he did a big signed picture of himself. <laughs> Narcissists don't change, do they? All the Sturm und Drang of celebrating the Nobel started to wear on Grazia. She had a, a pet crow named Cheka, who was also bothered. Grazia apparently said, If Cheka has had enough, then so have I. My apologies to Sardinians and other fans of Deleda. I probably should have ranked her a bit higher in my look at the Nobel Prize winners by decade, and I will put her books on my list of things to read starting with Cane El Vento, Reads in the Wind. Thank you for the email, Michele, and thank you for supporting the show. Next up is listener Ben, subject and appreciation. Jack, this morning I listened to your John Keats podcast. I was driving southeast from Spokane, across the Palouse, 
toward the dripping pines and firs of the Idaho panhandle. The sun rose, briefly burnished the undersides of the eastern clouds, and was gone. As I entered the steep, timbered mountains, it began to rain. I worked through the day, pruning and removing trees along a section of utility lines. By early evening, the temperature dropped, and I packed my gear. I was tired from a day of climbing trees, the deep fatigue of extended bodily labor. I traveled west toward home. Every article of clothing I wore was wet, and I was splashed with mud and covered in sawdust. In the last half hour of work, my fingers had lost their feeling. My soaked wool socks were wedged into the creases of my clammy toes. As the mountains retreated behind me, the rain lessened and then stopped completely, and the logging towns gave way to small farming communities. The hilly, furrowed fields that had been barred with snow in the morning were free of it now, and green with early spring growth. Where it broke through the shifting and layered clouds, shafts of sunlight released from this infant crop an insistent glow. I reached out my hand. The air from the vent was warm. The road rose and fell with the gentle terrain. Two magpies, perched in a bush, flashed their black-and-white plumage as I passed. I had a thermos of hot coffee, an idle hour, and the history of literature with my friend Jack Wilson. I listened to John Keats, Part 2. Thank you for everything, Ben. Hmm. There we go. A little short story with my humble podcast as the epiphany. I can't imagine a nicer tribute. I feel very lucky to have these listeners. It might not be the biggest audience out there. Last time I checked, you probably recall, we were number four in the world of literary podcasts behind three Harry Potter podcasts. So I know at least some audiences are bigger, but I think my audience is the best. Take that, you simpering little wizard. I'm kidding, of course. JK, you are welcome on the show anytime. We are thankful for your service. And we're thankful to Ben and Michele and all our other listeners who write and comment and subscribe and support. If you'd like to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash literature, where for a small monthly contribution, a dollar a month, some people give a little more, five dollars is common, which is a little less than a buck a show now that we're rolling. But whatever you can give is fine and more than appreciated. If you're not a monthly contributor, if that's not your sort of thing, you can go buy me a virtual coffee or two. Someone recently bought me 20, which is nice since I do drink a lot of coffee, at historyofliterature.com slash shop. So that's patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop. Your generosity is greatly appreciated and helps to keep things up and running here at the Jack Wilson Studios. Okay, one more quick break. Then we're back with our discussion of heroes and hero worship. Athletes dying young. A little A.E. Hausman in the mix. Professor Mitchell Nathanson after this.
Okay, joining me now is Mitchell Nathanson, Professor of Law in the Center for the Study of Sports Law at Villanova University School of Law. He's here to help us look ahead to the baseball season here in the United States. But don't worry, non-sports fans, baseball is not really our subject here. Instead, we're going to talk about heroes and hero worship and writing that exposes the secrets of a subculture and the way the world responds to masculine figures showing their vulnerability. Professor Mitchell Nathanson, welcome to the History of Literature. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me. So I understand you're a professor of law with a specialty in sports law. So what kinds of topics would you cover in sports law? I think it's more of what isn't covered under sports law. Mm. It's pretty it's pretty much everything. There's labor, there's employment, contracts, there's some there can be international law, antitrust, of course, there's some constitutional law. I think there's so many things you could reasonably ask the question, if is there such a thing as sports law? But it's really more the umbrella mm-hmm. uh that really where you can talk about a lot of different things. Um, yeah. Although most most people who say want to study sports law, they want to be sports agents. Um, right. But but there's a lot of different areas which sports law touches, uh, which is I think surprises a lot of people. They think they're there for one thing, and they find that oh geez, this is like the rest of law school for better or for worse, I guess. Right. And did you? I'm guessing it's a very popular course that you would be teaching a lot of very popular courses. Well, yeah, the sports law stuff um, is, is pretty popular. Um, I mainly teach writing, mm. uh, and um, this the sports law. There's a sports law center, and we have a few classes. And as I said, there are people who who want to be sports agents. Um, but the the interesting sports law that I teach is uh, in the spring. I go to uh, Madrid and I teach an American sports law class to uh, Europeans, mm. and that's really interesting because. We have a lot of assumptions about just the way the world of sports work mm-hmm. here in America. And then when you get over there where it's completely different, all of those assumptions go out the window. And wow. and, and yeah. they're really interested in, well, why do you do it like this? Why why don't you relegate teams? Why, mm. yeah. why, why are your leagues set up this way as opposed to that way? And I have to tell you, there are more things – that are new and news to me than I think to them, because every time I go over there, there's always something different that um, is percolating over over there, which is not so much here. And it's just interesting to get that different perspective. It's just it's really it's really very cool to to talk to those people who are just coming at it from such a different perspective. Right. And somewhere along the way, you became the biographer of Jim Bouton. Uh, so was that something you've done before? Is this are you uh, also a biographer, or was there something about Jim Bouton that uh, did you get access to his materials, or how did this come about? Well, I I, I had written some um, books, baseball books before. Uh, in fact, I had written a biography before this one on uh, Dick Allen, who was mm. a um, mm-hmm. was a uh, slugger for the Phillies in the '60s, and I guess I'm drawn to iconoclasts. Yeah, and and Allen was certainly one, and Bowden is one. Although he's very different. And yeah. Well, let's let's uh, take a second for Dick Allen because wasn't he? Uh, he was a pioneer in as a free agent, or didn't he? I could see there's some sort of nexus with sports law, but I'm I'm having trouble putting my finger on it. Well, well, he he's interesting because he he came in the second wave of integration. Um, so baseball integrated in in 1947 with Jackie Robinson and and I people know that story. Um, there was a bunch of players who came up along with Robinson and next those few years afterwards. 
But then there were players who came up in the early 60s, and Allen was one of them. After the, I guess, all the the euphoria, I guess, of people celebrating that uh, had died down, and but what had what had taken its place was more of it was a it was a kind of a, a two class system, and and it was pretty much accepted that if a white player could do X, but a black player couldn't do that. Um, and Allen was one of the first people to stand up and say, "Well, why is that?" And hmm. he was branded a malcontent and and uh, and and a bad guy uh, for standing up and questioning, "Well, why is why are you treating Mickey Mantle under under one set of rules, but I get treated under a different set of rules?" Uh, the interesting thing about Allen was that he wanted to be treated under a different set of rules. That's the funny thing about him. He but he wanted the superstar rules mm. and the su- the superstar rules were only for guys like mantle white superstars black superstars were not treated diff- they were treated like kind of the run of the mill white player was and allen was well i'm not a run of the mill player i'm a superstar why don't i get the treatment that um that a guy like mantle gets the media would cover for mantle mantle as we'll get into this with bouton too but mantle had a drinking problem. He had a, he had all, a lot of personal issues, and the media would cover up for them, but they wouldn't cover up for Allen. Hmm. Um, Allen had his own issues, but every time he went out for a drink, it showed up in the newspaper the next day. And right. so he wanted to know, well, why is it that I get treated differently? And he had a he had a great career, but he had a tough career because he just wouldn't accept the standard reply which was well you just can't get away with things like that and he was right in saying well why is that like why can't i and um he he, i guess the interesting thing about alan is that he he didn't have really a social agenda like uh, unlike a jackie robinson who was really i mean he was a great player but he was also was very overtly looking for equality um for uh for african americans and things like that alan just wanted to be treated like every like every other superstar Mm. and i think people took offense to that that he wanted to be treated like a special like a superstar but his response is well no i just want to be treated like every other superstar um and baseball just wasn't ready for that so he was an iconoclast and 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 I, i found his story fascinating um, and and Bouton sort of was around the same era as Allen, right. but very different. And so for those speaking reasons, of, yeah. Speaking Bouton. of people who uh, baseball wasn't ready for, uh, so who was Jim Bouton? So Bouton likes to say, or he liked to say, that he was the first fan to ever play in the big leagues. Hmm. Uh, now I, that's probably not true, <laughs> but 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 it's 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 a good jumping off point, I think, in that he he. He was the guy – when you went to the ballpark, you see these guys and most people that you watch, they're so good and they're so talented and everything comes so easy to them. It's hard to relate to that guy. Yeah. Uh, but when you saw Jim Bouton, he just looked like he was working so hard at it. And I think that when you saw Jim Bouton play, you could say to yourself, well, I can't be Mickey Mantle. Things just come too easy to him. But mm. I could be this guy. This guy, he threw everything into every pitch. You could see when he, he was in his windup, he, he, it was a max effort as his arms and legs were going everywhere. It, everything was put into every pitch. He, he wasn't a really a big guy, but he, he, he threw everything he had into every pitch. And like I said, when you were in the stands, he's the guy you would identify with because he was the guy. He said, you know what? If I worked a little harder, I could maybe do that. So that, that, that's, he had a connection with people. 
well before he wrote uh, whatever he wrote um, because I think people just identified with him. And it, it's just so hard to identify with so many professional athletes because they're just they're just so different than the rest of us. Right. And then he started scribbling notes in the locker room, and, and uh, I guess that was around 1969. And in 1970, he comes out with this book, Ball Four. So what was Ball Four about, and what was why did it make such a splash? So Ball Four, people assume now, now we're half a century out, uh, they assume that it was the first of its kind, first tell-all, things like that. And really, it wasn't the first of its kind in form in that mm. the the type of book that it is, if you looked at it, it's a diary or it's a pseudo diary um, where he, he goes through every day of the season and he writes uh, his comments about what happened in the locker room, what happened here, what happened there. Um, those books had been around for about a decade at that point. Um, mm. So it, it wasn't the first of those, but it was, I think – it was the first book that turned the the narrative of insider baseball books on its head in that most baseball books before then, what they were aiming to do was to take the reader into this special world and you could live inside that world for 300 pages and you could imagine to the extent that you could what it was like to be Mickey Mantle or whoever, Joe DiMaggio, Willie Mays, whoever. Um, and you were, the point of it was to take you out of your world and put you in this other world, which you could another, in no other uh, aspect of your life ever experience. But Balfour was the opposite. Balfour invited you into the locker room. But when it did that, it showed you that the locker room wasn't all that different from your life. Mm. And, and, and it really showed, even though we're dealing with professional athletes, it showed just how universal everything they were going through was, which I, to me, that was the revolutionary thing. Yes, you got a diary of what happened on this day or this day, but you could relate to it. You, you, could, you can't relate to Mickey Mantle's day in and day out doings, at least as they were per portrayed before uh, Ball Four. But when you read Ball Four, it didn't seem all that much different from your job. Even whatever your job was, um, there was pettiness, there was striving, there was humor, there was envy, there were all these sorts of things that you experienced, and you were experiencing them in a major league locker room, and I just think it was mind-blowing. Mm. And there were two, I guess there's two things that I want to talk about in particular, and let's save Boughton and the struggle that he was going through, because I think that is incredibly dramatic and uh, riveting, and I, I read this book um, I guess about 30 years ago, but I still remember it vividly. So let's talk about that second. But first, I just want to make sure I understand. So when you say that there were tell-all books before, wasn't Boughton's a little more of a peek under the curtain with the, the drug use and the chasing women? and Or was his just the book that, because it was so prominent, that that's what struck people as being new and, and sort of scandalous? Well, you're right. There, it, it, did, it went a little further. Uh, but one thing I found surprising when I went, I mean, I, like you, I read this, I think the first time I read it was 81 during the baseball strike. Cause I just wanted something baseball related to read. Right. I, I, I remember all of the scandalous things, I guess, you know, the, the drug use and the, 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 the skirt chasing and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I, when I was starting to do the research for this book, I went back and I read all of it, not all of them, but the, the prominent 
baseball or sports diaries that came before Bouton's. And I was surprised to find that a lot of the things that Bouton talked about were in those other books. Um, mm. So uh, greenies, uh, amphetamines that yeah. players were, were taking, um, Bouton made a lot of, of that. And there's a they, it got a lot of publicity for that. But I read um, Instant Replay, which was a, um, a year – in the life of uh, Jerry Kramer, who was uh, an offensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers, mm-hmm. that that came out in '67, '68. Um, he he wrote about that um, mm. a little bit, um, although he always attributed the Greenies to the players who couldn't otherwise make the team, and they had to do something to help them make the team, and they got cut anyway. Uh, whereas Bouton was a little more open by saying, "Hey, you know, pretty much half of the players take them, if not more." Yeah. Uh, uh, but but those elements were there in those other books, and and I, I think they were more prominent in Ball Four, and I think that's what people latched onto initially. Uh, but if it was if it was just about those things, I think the book would have faded away because there's always going to be a book that's first in in exposing something, and that book becomes a, you know, a, a relic pretty quickly. It doesn't resonate. Once the other books that surpass it in terms of, uh, you know what it what it says, uh, come out. Um, right. So it's interesting, and in that that's what brought people to it initially. All of those things. Yeah. Um, but that's not what caused it to stick around for half a century. Why do you think it still resonates even fifty years later? What elements of the book haven't we talked about yet? I think it resonates because of its universality, and I think that. Like I said, when I first read it, I was, let's see, it was 81, so I was 15. And I, that's probably the right around the, the age where you want to read that book for the first time. <laughs> it's got a lot of good language in it and, and, and uh, you know, illicit activity. So that's, that's going to appeal to a 15-year-old. Right. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my memory of it is I think I've, I found it in the library or, or somehow ran across it. And then I had to do a book report. Uh, like my junior year in high school, and I've said, "Oh well, I'll do it on this." And my English teacher kind of rolled her eyes, of you know, oh, of course, <laughs> you know, she said, oh, "Okay, you can do it on that," you know. But it, it was kind of like I felt like I was getting away with something that I, it was something I was actually reading for pleasure. But uh, <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> but it was, you know, had enough kind of uh, there was enough credence to it that my teacher didn't think it was a total a, a total softball of a book, but that it was. Uh, something that was acceptable enough for her, but she knew that I was enjoying all the uh, scurrilousness of it as well. Yeah. I talked to a lot of people who had the same, <laughs> the same situation. <laughs> they, they did it for a book report and, and the, the, the teacher uh, either didn't let him do it or they gave him a lecture um, <laughs> or something like that, which all, which by the way, just makes it more interesting. Right. And that's right. now you really, now you're really interested in it. When somebody tells you, you can't read it. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's you know that's when I read it the first time, but I I think the reason that it, it it still resonates is that it's not so much a book about baseball and it's not so much a book about greenies or this or that, it's it's really a book that's written f- primarily for men about men's feelings, mm. and and there's not too many of them out there that um that succeed. Uh, it, it's a book that, like I said before, that you know, it's it's universal in that it deals with a lot of emotion, and it, it under the guise of gallows humor or crude humor and locker room humor. Um, but as you get older, 
and you read it as an older person, you start to see a lot of things represented in there that are you feel in your life. And when I was going through the papers, going when I was researching this, I went through a lot of letters um, that he received, and there I there were so many letters from people who had gone through some sort of trauma in their life, mm. who who wrote him and said how important that book was to them just to help them get through it first to put a smile on their face but more more than that it was that it just talked about shame fear of failure embarrassment um all these things that it's just for whatever reason is harder for men to talk about than women and, and it just it does such a good job of dealing with those things that when you read it you it sticks with you beyond all of the surface hilarity. Yeah. Well, what I remember the most is that he, I guess he had, he had had uh, an injury or, or some kind of career setback and he was making kind of a comeback and just the ups and downs of him when he would go out there to pitch and sometimes it would go okay and sometimes it wouldn't. And you really uh, ride along with him in that, in his, his hopes as he's kind of aging out of his position as an athlete and he's not ready to give it up, but he's, he's hanging on and you really start to root for him. You, you get, you get old young in baseball mm, mm-hmm. and you re, like, like you say, you really, you feel it. You, you feel a guy who's just trying to hang on. Yeah. And you know he he's a he's more self aware than than most players, but you feel it not only with him, but you feel it with the other players too. Uh, I think one thing that was really important to the success of Ball Four was that it isn't just a diary about Bouton on you know the Yankees, which is who he came up with. It's a diary of Bouton with the expansion Seattle Pilots, yeah. and, and and so the Seattle Pilots were an expansion team in 1969. And all of his teammates were rejects. And that's so important to the book because you you have a bunch of guys. You have 25 guys who are all discarded players. They've all been rejected by their other clubs. The only reason they're there is because they're on the way down. Right. And so you have 25 guys collectively staring the end in the face yeah. and how they deal with it. And, and some of them deal with it through – anger and some of them through humor and some of them through pettiness and some of them through all all different sorts of ways and and you see it through that book you see this sense of there's a sense of desperation that runs through it yeah um and you, you yes there's a lot of a lot of juvenile humor but then you ask yourself well why is that there well it's there because there's a lot of stress and and this is how they're dealing with it and this fear that they could wake up tomorrow and it could all be over yeah. And these are guys who, you know, baseball, for those who might not be as familiar with how things work for the major leagues, baseball is often uh, guys who go straight from high school into the minor leagues and the odds are against them. But they're, you know, for a lot of them, this is the one thing that they've been good at and their body is kind of their uh, their moneymaker. And as they become, you know, in their 20s and, and mid-20s, the writing becomes on the wall. Most of them, especially at that time, wouldn't have made enough money to retire on, but they might be facing, you know, well, I guess uh, next year at this time, I might be selling insurance or, or driving a truck. And so the, the stakes are high 
And it's for a lot of people who maybe, you know, they were so close to glory that they could they could see it. They're sort of salieri to all of these Mozarts. But, you know, at the same time, there's all this, every year there's a new crop of young athletes who are there to take their place as well. So the the desperation and, and kind of the, uh, the roller coaster ride of success and failure is built into the process. Right. Each one of them has a story that they can tell of when they were better than when they were there, you know, and, and yeah. that's, that's, that's the, when I first spoke to Bouton, that was the first thing that he said to me was that, you know, it wasn't so much that they were just on a team. It's that all these guys had these stories of when things were better and they, they all came from an organization where they were valued more than they're valued here. And, and they're really, they're not really treated very well. They're not treated well by the league, by the other teams, and they're not even treated well by management on their own team because the management knows that these guys are just stopgap guys. They're mm. not they're not people who are going to um, be there when and if this team ever turns it around. So they don't they don't really treat them very well, and these guys know it. And it's sort of you're competing with each other, you're competing against the other team, but you're also sort of all in it together trying to keep everybody above float for as long uh, 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 keep everybody afloat for as long as possible um, before the whole uh, ship sinks and mm-hmm. it's going to sink and there's nothing you can do to uh, stop it from sinking yeah so uh, you had told me in an email before this that Bouton has uh, compared the book to uh, Tim O'Brien's short story the things they carried which is one that we've covered here on the history of literature and what were the what are the the similarities that you think he saw? Well, that story is a war story that's not about well, it's not a, it's a Vietnam war story that's not about Vietnam or, or the war. Mm. Really. Mm-hmm. It, it it's 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 people involved in that, but right. it's really about much more than that. Yeah. And Bouton saw Ball Four as a baseball story that wasn't about baseball. And if you read Balfour, there's very little about baseball in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're in the locker room. And, but those, the game part is th- there's almost nothing. It, it's it's more of a re- how do I feel after this game as opposed to what happened in the game. Isn't this not much of that? Um, instead, it's more of how do I deal on the inside with these emotions that I don't think I'm supposed to express. And and just like the things they carried deals with – it's really about people who we on the outside would see as heroic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they go off to war and we all know the you know, the story of, 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 of the heroic soldier and that's the story that we've internalized and, and that's what we want to think about, I guess. Right. Baseball is not war, but it, it's also somewhat of a heroic um, enterprise from the outside. You know, these people, they're special. Everything is great for them. Look where they are. They're in the major leagues. Everything is hunky dory. But on the inside, there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of envy. There's a lot of fear. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys, like you said before, they this is before they made a, f- a fair amount of money. They're barely keeping their families afloat, and some of them know they shouldn't be doing this still because they could make more money doing something else. Mm. Uh, and yet they're too afraid to not do this because, as you said, also said before, this is all they know how to do. 
Yeah. Uh, they, 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 a lot of them didn't go to college. They went right from Oklahoma to the minor leagues, to the big leagues. And now they're 25, 26, and this is coming to an end. And how do you deal with that? Uh, and so I, what he saw as the parallel was here on the inside, look how much different it looks than from what it might appear to look like on the outside. Right. Um, there, there's a there's another really good baseball book which I think really summarizes this well. Also, there's a scene in another one. Um, uh, Pat Jordan uh, wrote a book uh, called A False Spring. It came out in the 70s at some point. He was he's a he's he's a writer, a baseball writer, a sports writer. Um, but he for a couple of years played minor league ball, and he tells a story in A False Spring that really made me think about what Bouton was getting at in ball four. Mm -hmm. The story that Jordan tells is he was a, he was a bonus baby before there was a draft. There was, you know, if you were a great high school uh, player, there was no draft and you went to the highest bidder and you could get a huge bonus. And and he was that that type of a player. So he was a, he was a star in high school and he gets a big bonus and he goes and he plays in the minors and he never made it. He he never got to the majors. He played just a few years in the minors and then he kind of washed out his brother who became a dentist, I think, put on the wall in his office a picture of Jordan in his baseball uniform for the Tigers uh, in a minor league, you know, picture taken and uh, hang on the wall. And because his brother was so proud of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan, though, said and wrote in the book that he didn't have the nerve to tell his, ask his brother to take the picture down because he found it humiliating. Mm. Because all it did was remind him of how, of how he had failed. That he had only made it to the minors or that, right. he, he, yeah, that he washed yeah, out. He, he washed out and he said it was just so humiliating every time he saw that picture. Oh. And and he felt it, he was too too ashamed to say anything because um, he also felt that it would be hurt his brother if he told his brother how awful that picture made him felt. So the picture just stayed up there. Um, but I think that's what that's what Bouton's getting at, that yeah. you, know, you see from the outside one thing. But when you get into the, you get into it on the inside, you see all these other things. And that's what the things they carried is about, I think. Yeah. Uh, and that's what ball four is about. And when we consume these narratives, whether it's of war or sports, we tend to look at outcomes and we look at wins and losses and we measure success and failure that way. And Bouton and uh, Tim O'Brien are saying, well, set that aside and take a look at the people who are engaged in this, not as if they're, you know, gladiators and you are spectators in the stand just watching them as, you know, human beings, um, you know, completely external. And you you get to see whether they uh, slay the lion or are slayed by the lion. But instead, think about what's going through their mind and, and let's expose that to you and see if it resonates with you as in terms of, how you feel about life or how you feel about your own problems or how you address your own challenges in your life. And, you know, we're so used to in sports movies, we see a team and we watch the team come together. And then at the end, they win the championship or that kind of thing. And, and Boughton is really after something different here. Yeah. And the thing about ball four is that he doesn't succeed on any level. Right. So he, he, he starts off with Seattle and then he gets sent down to the minors a couple of months in. Uh, he comes back. He's never more than a mop-up guy. And then he gets traded to Houston. Right. And 
and, and so there's 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 right. no part of this story that's a success right he it, doesn't it, uh he doesn't strike out the you know with two outs in the ninth and and win the world series game or anything like that that's not what this is building toward right and and the the book it kind of works through a conceit of i think the the subtitle originally was uh, my life and times uh, trying to perfect the knuckleball or something like that yeah. and it was all about him trying to get this knuckleball to work. And and if it was a story we would recognize from the older stories, it would be he finally strikes somebody out and win the big game. Yeah. He never gets the knuckleball under control and, and he, he's <laughs> never able to master it. Um, right. But from his perspective, it isn't the mastery of it that's important. It's it's the striving for mastery. Yeah. It's, just, it's just trying to survive and give yourself another day where you can go out there and give it another shot. And, and I think that's the part that resonates. Yeah. And he uses that, right? I remember conversations in the book where he'll say, you know, he's telling some coach who's kind of suggesting that he's washed up and he sort of will say, you know, I've, but my knuckleball, I've, <laughs> I've got right. a plan. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm there. I feel like I'm there. I'm almost there. And, and, and it never gets there. It's always, it's always elusive. He'll throw one that'll dance and he'll think he's there. But then the next one will just go all, you know, flat yeah. and get knocked out of the park. And, and he... He never, he never succeeds. It, it's funny. I, I asked him about that, and I, I said to him that he's, he's, uh, he's like a Sisyphus, you know, <laughs> keep pushing the boulder up the hill. Yeah. And um, he, I, I, he quoted Camus. <laughs> he said, "Well, we must, we must consider Sisyphus to be happy." Mm. And, and he said, "That's, that's the, the joy of it. The joy right. is that you get to, you get to go out there for another day and push the boulder up the hill." And He's now. This is an older person now saying this to me, not yeah. the thirty-year-old Bowden, but the older Jim Bowden said, "You know, it's just the opportunity to get out there and 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 give it a shot and and try." And and every day that I had an opportunity to go out there and try was that was a success. It this if it had worked better, sure that'd be great. But it's 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 the thrill of actually having the opportunity yeah. and striving to make sure that you have another opportunity tomorrow. Now, some say that this was Balfour's the greatest book about baseball ever written, and I think if it has a rival for that title, it would probably be The Boys of Summer by the sports writer Roger Kahn, and there's actually a connection between the two books, which I didn't realize until you had told me about it. So what was the connection? Yeah, I think of uh, Balfour and The Boys of Summer as the southern man, sweet home Alabama mm. of baseball literature in okay. that Balfour came first. It was released in 1970. And The Boys of Summer is really the response. I, I think this is probably the first time Roger Kahn has been connected to um, Leonard Skinner. But I'm going to make the point anyway. He's <laughs> um, <laughs> the Leonard Skinner of sports writing. But Kahn was a sports writer um, who followed the Brooklyn Dodgers in the in the early 50s. And um, now these are the Jackie Robinson Brooklyn Dodgers uh, and uh, mythic team. If we were yeah. talking about a team that's up on Mount the Mount Olympus of baseball, it's the Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. And he was a beat writer for them for a couple of years. And then he – he had a different view of sports and baseball than Bouton did, and, and he didn't like ball four at all. Um, yeah. he, he wrote a pretty scathing review of it in Esquire uh, a few months after it came out, and, and he said it was it was superior and mocking in tone, and it it missed it missed the point of a 
of what a great sports book could be. Uh, and it set forth all of the reasons why it failed. And then two years later, he writes The Boys of Summer, which is his answer to Ball Four, which contains all of those things. Um, I have the review. If I can read, if you want to hear like a couple of paragraphs of what he said. Yes. And, and connect it. Um, so he goes on for several pages about it. he doesn't like this, he doesn't like that. At one point, he said, you know, Puritanism is, an, is, is no good, but Ball Four makes anti Puritanism uh, seem terrible as well. Uh, and, and then he tells this story, uh, which is really getting at why he didn't like the book. So he says, this is Roger Kahn. He said, I had a friend once, an infielder of 35 years, whose right knee was going arthritic. He called before the, the team came into Yankee Stadium for an important series and suggested we go out after the game. We went to the village, and in the cab, he mentioned that he had cost his team that game that, the game that afternoon when his arthritic knee tightened and he missed a grounder hit to his right. We then sat in a cavernous village club, drinking martinis that tasted faintly of prune juice. The ball player turned and described the ground ball he had missed. More pruny martinis came. He had seen every bounce, he said, and in his mind, he scooped the ball, backhanded it, and threw it hard. His arm was fine, but on the field, pain had immobilized him. He made hopping limps toward the grounder, which carried by him. That cut you, he said, to see that play and not be able to do it. You knew this was going to happen, I said, but it's happening he said. And this man, who was very brave and had a chest of oak, began to cry. It's something to cry about, being an athlete who does not die young. And a hero's tears are the profound, unbridgeable current between the bestseller Ball Four and a major or even uh, serious book. Well, two years later, hmm. he wrote that book. He, he, he wrote a book about all the athletes who don't die young, and that was The Boys of Summer. And that's that's why he's Leonard Skinner. Mm. Okay, so uh, and he in particular had a quote: "Anyone presuming to write seriously about sport had better recognize the existence of to an athlete dying young." He was referring to a poem by A. E. A. E. Hausman, which was included in Hausman's famous collection, "A Shropshire Lad," which was published in 1896. So let's take a quick break, and I am going to uh, we'll let our listeners hear to an athlete dying young, and then you and I will come back and we'll unpack what the poem means and how it sheds light on the tension between these two great books about athletes. To an Athlete Dying Young by A.E. Hausman The time you won your town the race, we chaired you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought you, shoulder high. Today the road all runners come, shoulder high. We bring you home, and set you at your threshold down, townsman of a stiller town. Smart lad to slip betimes away from fields where glory does not stay, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Eyes the shady night has shut, cannot see the record cut, and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Now you will not swell the rout of lads that wore their honors out, runners whom renown outran, and the name died before the man. So set before its echoes fade the fleet foot on the sill of shade, and hold to the low lintel up the still-defended challenge cup. And round that early laureled head will flock to gaze the strengthless dead, and find unwithered on its curls the garland briefer than a girl's okay so we're back so we just listened to 
to an athlete dying young. And Mitchell Nathanson, you're here to help us unpack this. When you when you read the paragraph about Roger Kahn's athlete, I thought that that wasn't so different from what Boughton was up to, except unless what Kahn's point is, is that Boughton uh, is trivializing the sense of failure or the uh, that he's not giving it the dignity that that Khan would ascribe to it. Is that kind of what Khan is getting at here? Yeah, I think so. Because I, I, I agree with you. I, the whole point of Balfour is, 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 are, are all these athletes who are aging out of the game. Yeah. Um, they're just like that infielder, right? Who can't catch the ball anymore. Right. Uh, I do think what he's getting at is the dignity of it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and he, I think Khan felt that Bouton was making a joke out of all of it mm-hmm. and, and not uh, taking seriously this the plight of the uh, of of this ball player in the bar who's crying because you know what he sees in his mind and what he can do on the field are two different things right. and, and and so i think that's what he's getting at uh, and so yeah i think that's to, that that's the point and to be fair to Bouton, he's self-deprecating which is a very winning uh, way for a first person narrator to be and maybe it's, uh, you know, if, if he had taken a position toward himself as an athlete dying young, or in this case, uh, you know, losing his, his physical gifts uh, and being washed out of the sport, it might have been kind of pretentious or seemed kind of heavy handed. Maybe comedic effect was, was the appropriate stance for him to take for a book like Ball Four. I don't, th- I don't think yeah, if he had been if he had addressed that more overtly i don't know how that would have worked because the the, mm-hmm. the the book he's writing is 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 a book about ball players in the locker room i don't know if there's a big deep discussion of Hausman going on in the seattle pilots locker room and, and as a matter of fact he he responded to that um criticism in he wrote another book the next year and he spent some time talking about that review and particularly um, addressing the uh, the poem, and he said that he thought that the poem and Khan were both too sentimental, mm. and, and that is that an athlete never thinks like that. Yeah. And and while uh, you know a fan might look at it like that, or a writer might look at it like that, he was trying to portray what the athlete felt, and he said the athlete's not going, he's not going to put it in those terms. Uh, he might he might tell a crude joke, but that might have the same effect. It's just it's harder to get at. It's not as obvious as, you know, the athlete crying in front of you, which yeah. you're not going to see in a locker room. You're just not going to see it. I mean, you might see it in another in another venue, but you're not going to see it in a big league locker room. And I think I think Bouton felt that Khan was trying to make something melodramatic that was dramatic enough on its own. Uh, and and portrayed the way Bouton portrayed it. Um, if you if you take it out of that element and you turn it into melodrama, like um, well, like Khan's book was accused of being, uh, the, he thought it was it was an not an accurate portrait. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I could see both sides of that. Yeah, well, it kind of reminds me. I don't know if you've watched the Netflix series The Crown at all, but there's there's this thing with the royal family where there's this constant tension between uh, appearing as grander than real people or uh, trying to show that they're down to earth and that they have the same 
you know, struggles and, and daily inconveniences as anybody else. And on the one hand, you know, that might make them more relatable. And so there some in the royal family think, well, we need to show that, you know, that we eat dinner and sit down just like everyone else. We watch in front of the television or, you know, whatever it is that they're going to use to kind of give a common touch to what they do. And then other people say, you know, that's not what the people want from us. They want us to be something larger than life. They want the fairy tale. They want us, they want us to be, they know that we're different. And so they want us to be different. And I get the sense with this uh, Khan uh, Boughton uh, difference is that, you know, baseball, especially, especially during that era, it was the thing that boys grew up idolizing these heroes, that these were their, these were their gods. And any flaws or, you know, personal failings wasn't part of the myth. And what Boughton is saying is when that's fine for kids, maybe, but when you get to be a grown up, you, you want to, you want to understand that they're just like you and me and that they you know, just like you might lose your job or or be afraid of, you know, the next month's bills or something like that. They're going through that as well. And Khan seems to be saying, no, they're different. They're athletes, just like they were. The myth can survive, but it now becomes a myth of, you know, a, a flawed but her still heroic figure. And, and the, the decline is something worthy of a Homer. You know, it should be treated with this sort of reverence rather than pretending like they're just like you and me because they're not. That's interesting that you say that because I, I was looking at reviews of um, The Boys of Summer the other day mm -hmm. just to see, well, how was it received then? And it was – most people – most reviews were, were, were positive. But I did read one. I think it was the New York Times uh, said something that they thought that – Khan's portraits of the players was something scraped off the walls of a cathedral yeah. and put it between the pages and that it was so um, it, it, so reverent and 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 just not at all a down-to-earth look at who these people were and I, I I think that gets exactly at what Khan didn't like about Paul four I don't think he liked that these guys were portrayed as everyday people. I, mm -hmm. I think that he found it, it minimizes all of their, 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 you know, their, their, their trials and angst and all those other things. Whereas I think Bouton thought that's what makes them more relatable. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Oh, interesting. And it, uh, I want to say who's right, but I feel like in a way we've moved past con, especially with baseball. We, we went through a, a, the steroids era and all of these things. I don't think anyone would expect grownups to be looking at baseball players in the same way as they were. And and the other thing that's happened is the rise of social media and Twitter and so forth. And now we have more access to these people in their everyday lives than ever before. And it seems like there isn't a, you know, it's, it's like Hollywood celebrities at one point maybe were living these glamorous lives that were completely out of reach for the rest of us. And now everybody is is kind of back on earth walking around together. Yeah, there's no more William Holdens. Right. Everything is is really it's equalized, I guess is not a right way to say it. But every it, it there's there's nobody up on that pedestal in that way at least. Yeah. anymore. And I, I think I think that's what upset Roger Kahn. I I think particularly if you if you go back to that era when everything else, every other institution was being ripped apart, 
right? We're talking about the late 60s and everything, all, all of these standard bearers of culture were being attacked. And I guess the way I read it is that he's looking at Bowden as doing that to baseball. Mm-hmm. No, our hero. He's taking our heroes from us by making them seem petty and um and 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 just like the rest of us. And I think both the boys of summer was his attempt to put them, put them back on the cathedral wall. And as yeah. you said, I think that's kind of it's too late for that. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to defend Khan a little bit here and say that. You could argue, well, if you want to read about a guy who's worried about losing his job, let's have books about, you know, everyday people who are losing their jobs. And what we've lost is we don't have any heroes. We don't have any. Maybe there's something to be said about having some people who are remote from us and whether it's politicians or whether it's celebrities or athletes, maybe we could use a few ideals or um where people, on the other hand, is even as I'm saying that, I think, well, what what good does it do if it's all false? <laughs> <laughs> One of the more interesting characters in the book I found was Joe Pepitone. Yeah. I just found him so interesting because he was, he kind of had his feet in both worlds. So he he came to the big leagues with Bowton. And this is in the Yankees. This is the early 60s. And he was a, he, he, he was a, a first baseman, outfielder. Um, he had, again, like Bowden, he was, he, he had a couple of good years. He hung around for a while and, and he was kind of irreverent and came, was considered part of the new breed, Bowden and Pepitone and a, and a couple other guys. So he was part of the new breed, but he revered Mickey Mantle mm. and, and he, anything the, I spoke to a lot of people who covered the Yankees and even teammates of Bowton and Pepitone's on the Yankees. And they said, well, a good day for Joe Pepitone was a day that Mickey Mantle uh, smiled at him. Oh, right. And he, he just so revered him. And he, he, he resented ball four because he felt he wasn't so upset that ball four made fun of him. It was that it made fun of Mantle and diminished Mantle mm-hmm. in his eyes. And he just couldn't, to him, that that was a bridge too far, and and so he's interesting because he's not. You wouldn't classify him as an old school kind of a guy. He really wasn't. But I think I think there were he he liked the hero machine at least a little bit, and didn't like that it the attempt to just dismantle it completely. Yeah, and we we do you know you see that with heroes when when there's rumors around them and and whether it's Martin Luther King or you know there's others and you think people do need people like that to look up to and and to uh admire and uh to give us examples of how to live and you know on the other hand everyone has has personal flaws and no one is perfect and all of that but you can imagine if uh, a Joe Pepitone might look at Mickey Mantle and say this guy is a hero to kids this guy is is helping, you know, men and women get through their summer afternoon by looking forward to hearing the news of how the Yankees played. And there is something about exploding myths that feels unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the alternative is, though. I I guess, I mean, we had so many of these these other types of of books before that, um, that... I don't know if you could have written another one that would have been, you know, that that would have been um, something that just wasn't repetitive. Uh, yeah. And I, as I as I said earlier, I just I just think that a lot of it was the book Ball Four came along 
just at the perfect time. I mean, talk about a book of its moment, a book that's, you know, questioning heroes, questioning society, right, uh, right, right coming out in 1970. I mean, yeah. just at the moment. Yep. Uh, if the book comes out 10 years earlier, I just wonder, does that book get released at all? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it does. And if it gets released 10 years later, what does that book read like if it comes out in 1980? It, yeah. It's not going to read the same. Right. Right. Seems too late. Yeah. Uh, okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Uh-oh. Are you ready? As long as there's no math. <laughs> I don't think so, no. All right. After your book comes out, your Jim Boughton biography, you're, you're visited by a genie who says, great job with the Boughton book. You clearly know what you're doing. I can offer you full access to any athlete, living or dead. Just let me know whom you would like to write about. Which athlete do you pick and why? Oh, that is a tough one. Who would I want to write about? Living or dead? Whew. Gee, that's a tough one. I, I boy, living or dead? I hold on. There's an answer to this question that's going to be a good answer, and I don't <laughs> know if I have it. But hold on, I'm going to think about this. Oh, I would like. You know what? I, here's how I would want to write. If I, I have full access to this person, yeah. I want Joe Jackson. Oh, was Joe Jackson because I feel yes. like, like, like Joe Jackson. There's a story there that I think I think other people have told his story, and he's never told his story. Mm-hmm. And if I had the opportunity to sit down with him, yeah. Oh, I would do that. So for people who don't know, there was a, a scandal with the World Series called the Black Sox scandal. And Joe Jackson was sort of the star of the the White Sox, who who were then found to have thrown the World Series. But Joe Jackson had actually played really well, and he was swept up in the scandal, and he was kicked out of baseball and all of that. But people would point to his performance and say, he clearly wasn't trying to throw the World Series. Uh, and there's always been this sort of cloud that hung over him, even though he had been a great player, kind of a, a Hall of Fame caliber player. And you could look at his performance and think that he hadn't thrown the World Series. So you'd be interested in finding out uh, what he knew and what his teammates had done and how he felt about it and, and what his role, if any, had been in that, I guess. Right, because he he did perform well, although there have been people who said, yeah, he did well, but he he only he hit better when in the World Series when it didn't matter so much. So mm. he had a hot hit 360 something in the World Series, but most of those hits came in non-clutch times. Um, he did take money, but there's a question of whether he really saw that through. And I'm also interested in him as just he's so emblematic of an earlier time of baseball. You know, I just love yeah. the nickname, first of all. If that isn't the world's best nickname, Shoeless Joe Jackson, that tells you everything about the guy, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it, put, it puts a picture in your mind of who this guy is off a cornfield somewhere or North Carolina, wherever he came from. Yeah. And it's just such a – I don't know. I just think it would be interesting to get a just – just to just to ask him a question, turn on the tape recorder, and let him talk. Well, and to bring this full circle – uh, the other thing he's really famous for is when he came out of, I guess, the courtroom and there was a, a little boy there saying, say it ain't so, Joe. 
and it has it has come to be emblematic of the idea of a a hero when the myth uh, is tarnished, and uh, that's kind of what we've been talking about today with you know our view of heroes as flawed individuals. Uh, he is kind of the the number one example in American sports history of that, I think. Yeah, in many ways, he's the uh, he's the original sin in baseball. Yeah, right. Ah, okay. Well, Mitchell Nathanson, when does your book come out on Jim Bowden? May first. May first, and is it available for pre order or will it be? Yeah, it's available. It's available now. If you go on Amazon or wherever you wherever you order books, uh, it's 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 available now for pre order. Um, but it will be available. It's officially released May 1st, but I think it'll be available at some point in April. Okay. I think. Great. Well, Mitchell Nathanson, Nathan, sorry, Mitchell Nathanson, thank you very much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Well, thank you. It was great. It was a lot of fun. go that's going to do it for this episode of the history of literature podcast i hope you enjoyed it are there green shoots where you are i hope so if not we can enjoy this spring as much as we can in our imaginations i know we are all living with fear and sorrow and anger and frustration as disease ravages our planet but we need to close our eyes and think of meadows and cool breezes and the sound of birds in the morning and walking across the dewy grass. We will get back there to this paradise one way or another. Hang in there. My thanks to Mitchell Nathanson for joining me. His book comes out in a few weeks. It's available for pre-order now and would make an excellent Father's Day gift. For those of you with dads who like baseball or dads who like sports writing or dads who like heroes, if you'd like to support the show, like our friend McKelly in Turin and our friends Ben in Spokane and Matt in Utah, please do visit patreon.com slash literature to sign up or subscribe and rate and review and all those good things. Tell your friends they might be looking for some literature during this time of trouble. We'd be happy to have them. And we'll keep putting out two shows a week for as long as we can here at the History of Literature podcast. James Baldwin is coming up. And James Salter and Kazuo Ishiguro. Maybe a little John Cheever as well. And a few pleasant surprises. Green shoots. Or the podcast equivalent of them. Anyway, William Faulkner. He's on his way to coming in like a bull. A southern bull about to come into our china shop. We have some things we need to discuss with Mr. Faulkner. And we will do so. It's all part of the journey, folks. It is all part of the journey. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.